0: Isaiah 5:11 they will enter Zion with singing, everlasting joy will crown their heads, gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. This beautiful, beautiful text from Isaiah about the restoration of Zion, how do you hear it? What is the deep yearning, the deepest longing, the most wild and unimaginable hope that this text Pulls out of your heart. Parched lands will be watered and burst into bloom. Weakened bodies and hearts worn down by constant fear and dread will be healed as God turns all wrong into right and salvation. All our bodily infirmities will be healed and the evildoers who hurt and destroy, the jackals, the lions, the ravenous beasts, those who commit unspeakable wrongs, will no longer be on our path. This is a vision of complete and unending joy and liberation. Do you hear this as a vision of healing? Real question. Do you hear this as a vision of justice? Do you hear both? Yes? (laughs) Perhaps especially in the Protestant theological tradition since the Reformation, traditionally there's been a distinction made between the two forms or two emphases in ministry, the pastoral and the prophetic, or healing and justice. Traditionally the pastoral ministry has focused on the cure of souls, going all the way back to the early church's tradition of cura animarum offering assurances of consolation and forgiveness to those who are suffering from grief or a heavily burdened conscience. In the middle of the last century, the classic functions of pastoral care were articulated as healing, sustaining, guiding, and reconciling. And this has been at the heart of what we have constructed as the meaning of pastoral ministry. The central image of pastor, of course, is the shepherd, For Christians, the model of Christ as the good shepherd in the Gospel of John, who cares for the flock and guides them, protects them from wolves and marauders, and loves every last one of them. In a broader sense, which is how Pastoral theology is often conceived in Catholic, Orthodox, and also Jewish traditions, the pastoral ministry includes all the various things that the priest or rabbi does to bind up the good of the congregation and the well-being of its members. Who would not be inspired by this pastoral calling to care for the least and the lost, the ill and the hurting, and to love every last one of them? The prophetic ministry, in contrast, has been understood as the ways in which we engage in proclamation and advocacy, following the example of the prophets of old. And for Christians, the example of Jesus, who in the Gospel of Luke, verse chapter 4, verses 18 to 20, inaugurated his ministry with this reading from Isaiah himself. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me. To proclaim good news to the poor he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the lord's favor jesus's ministry is full of examples of turning the status quo upside down and proclaiming a vision of a realm of god's own pure desire where the last would be first And the first of this world as we have known it would be last, and where justice would prevail. This is a calling in ministry that goes far beyond a notion of charity, where the privileged give to the poor out of a sense of noblesse oblige, but rather calls us to roll up our sleeves and get into real relationships in communities to address the root causes of oppression and to work to make Isaiah's vision a reality here and now. It's the vision that inspired the Evangelical Movement, the Oxford Movement, the Social Gospel and the Catholic Worker Movement's direct relationships with the poor in the 19th and 20th centuries. Isaiah and the prophets of the Hebrew Bible were for both Christians and Jews that solid rock on which the Civil Rights Movement in America was built. This is the calling in ministry that causes us to take to the streets and proclaim in the name of God that black lives matter, and to take back the night from rapists and sexual predators, a timely reminder that April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. And the Me Too movement, founded by black civil rights activist Tarana Burke, not by white Hollywood starlets has recently brought this into the spotlight in our workplaces, in our lives, and in our churches. Being unapologetically and boldly centered on the gospel message of social justice, who would not be inspired by this prophetic calling? At the same time, in this convocation on the theme of pastoral and prophetic witness in traumatic times, I want to challenge what I see as a frequently drawn false dichotomy between the pastoral and the prophetic callings. Isaiah's vision in today's scripture is not one or the other, it's both. We are given a vision that is simultaneously both a vision of healing and a vision of justice. It's not even healing and justice, they are one and the same. And I believe in the work for healing and the work for justice, we need to remember both dimensions. For those who are drawn to pastoral theology and to the field of psychology and religion, our call is not simply to sit quietly in a book-lined study, dispensing wisdom for another person's personal growth. Although knowing one's own unconscious is never a bad idea, <laughs> and by that I mean not only the other person but ourselves. Even in the earliest days of psychoanalysis, though, for example, and, and where Susie, I was thinking, VUCA you know, volatile uncertain, um, complex, and ambiguous. What a great description of what happens in psychoanalytic treatment. (laughs) In the early days of psychoanalysis, Sigmund Freud and his daughter Anna and others in his early circle understood that to free the psyche from neurosis was not just a cure for mental illness, but a movement for social change. They started kindergartens and polyclinics and for their time enlightened community housing And they saw Vienna in the 1920s as a laboratory for overturning the sick, anti-Semitic, and repressive Habsburg church rule in Austria. A truly conscientious pastoral care or psychotherapy is where the personal widens into the political. A greater appreciation for the unconscious dimensions of the human psyche is necessary for the formation of pastoral leaders in a diverse world. By coming to understand some of the unconscious dynamics at play within and among persons, we can better build bridges of empathy that can more effectively combat the oppression, marginalization, and exclusion of all those defined as Other, capital O Other, by our dominant culture. So the pastoral ministry is not just about sticking band-aids on wounds but about learning to recognize the larger and often invisibilized context of domination that causes suffering, and advocating for change to the deep structures of society, politics, and the economy, so that the root causes of wounds do not perpetuate suffering down the generations. What image comes to to your mind when you think of the term pastoral care? Just think for a moment. Do You have a visual image of that. Sadly, in the Episcopal Church, among other denominations, we are still lagging behind some other denominations in theological education, at times clinging to the view that if we get our Bible and theology and church history right, pastoral care will just fall into place. (laughs) The wisdom of the church mothers and fathers will be enough to guide us, and anything else is just about building skills. On the contrary, And thankfully, this awareness is now growing in our Anglican Communion. Pastoral care and counseling involves an ever-evolving pastoral theology that draws both from traditional sources and creates new pathways of reflection and praxis as we learn from those in our care about what they need and what they need to believe. Pastoral care and counseling are also responsibly clinical, drawing on the best in cutting-edge psychotherapy, theory, and research. But what distinguishes pastoral care from other secular services and psychotherapy is that it is pastoral in just the sense that Paul Tillich once succinctly defined it as a helping encounter in the dimension of ultimate concern. The word pastoral, of course, as I mentioned, comes from pastor, which means shepherd, And this has been the traditional metaphor or model, the pastoral caregiver as the shepherd. The shepherd tends the flock, feeds and guides the sheep, protects them from wolves and marauders, and generally steers them in the directions that they are to go. And drawing on Christ's own words, the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This was taken seriously by generations of pastoral caregivers who felt a call to sacrificial love of their flock and the task of moral and spiritual guidance. But herein lies a serious pitfall, and that is the tendency to see self-sacrifice as a defining image of ministry. While some sacrifice is probably always necessary in a devoted Christian life, the dominance of a sacrificial image has caused numerous problems. In particular, it can lead us to take ourselves so seriously that we might view our own pastoral ministry as so uniquely indispensable that our own needs as a caregiver can be neglected indefinitely. And if the pastoral caregiver or his or her family should suffer for this, it's all within the framework of the self-sacrificial love of the shepherd. Also, the truth is who in any congregation wants to be thought of simply as a sheep? (laughs) As my dairy farmer husband would tell you, (laughs) he's biased in favor of cows of course but he says sheep are not very bright and have to be led everywhere and in fact if you let them they will just graze down their food source to nothing surely in this day and age most parishioners need to be given more credit than that pastoral care must follow the lead of those being cared for and cared about so this paradigm is now shifting in large part due to the influence of two very important and interrelated strands of theological thinking and pastoral praxis, the growing presence of women in both lay and ordained leadership in many mainline denominations, and the emergence in part through liberation theology of postcolonial voices in theology around the globe, and of at least some growth in diversity of racial and class leadership in American churches. Both of these influences have brought critiques from their own social location and theological perspective to the shepherd paradigm. No one it should be noted as trying to throw the baby or the shepherd out with the bathwater. But there's an increasing awareness that the limitations of this individualistic, heroic model and a wonderful opening up of possibilities for much wider horizon for pastoral care and pastoral theology. How many of you, when I asked what your image of pastoral care was, did you imagine a person sitting in a rather nicely appointed study, talking deeply and intently with one other person from the parish? Okay, so that image persists, right? So we're opening or widening this image, and it can be seen in at least four areas. One, listening as primary practice. Two, context. Three, diversifying and four, balance. So first, listening. Pastoral care involves learning to trust that silence is truly facilitative. Less is more, and a lot of pastoral care simply involves getting out of the way so that the Holy Spirit can actually do the healing work that is necessary. Paradoxically, this getting out of the way takes enormous training, discipline, and confidence. (laughs) This is what we call ministry of presence. Don't underestimate what the gift of being there and being with can mean. Our listening creates a space in which together we can listen for the promptings of the spirit in the parishioner's or patient's life, make meaning of the deep hurts, and find new openings for creativity and growth. An important shift is taking place in psychoanalysis called relational theory, which also upends the notion that we are the experts about the psyches of other people. Empathic listening echoes the infinite conversation of which Jewish philosopher Martin Buber wrote, extended the lines of relationships intersect the eternal vow. Gone are the days, if they ever existed, when the caregiver just diagnosed or spiritually assessed a parishioner or patient and then applied a rote formulaic treatment. Absorbing the influence of multiple disciplines, including postmodern philosophy, social constructionism in psychology, neuroscience, infant observation research, cultural anthropology, and even quantum physics, Relational psychoanalysis has offered us a way of working pastorally that recognizes simultaneously the subjectivity of each individual in the helping relationship and the intersubjectivity of the unconscious relationship that grows between and among us. Our individual psyches are all multi-layered, complex, composed of multiple self-states, memories, embedded impressions of important people in our lives in which a thick skein of projections and counter-projections, impressions and real communications compose the quality of our relationships and our ability to truly connect. We even perceive at times that what is going on in the inner life of the other person, we perceive it by feeling our way through our own mind, body and heart into the shared wisdom that is held by the relationship itself as much as by either individual, the relationship itself has its own subjectivity. Listening then is much more than what we do with our ears and our intellectual cognitive capacities. Listening is embodied full-minded attention to the other. Relational analyst Donald Stern uses the term witnessing to describe this form of deeply engaged attention in which he says we are all called into being by acts of recognition by another. As infants, our minds are first brought into being by recognition of our parents and primary caregivers. As adults, we continue to need witnesses, Stern calls them partners in thought, in order for the events of our lives to fall into narrative awareness, his quote. Without witnesses, there can be no recognition, no validation, and hence no renewal of experience. This practice of listening, of witnessing, is sacred. By serving as witness to another's story, we create space where new images, symbols, words, narratives, and meanings can emerge. Such genuine listening promotes inner transformation, what Stern has described as listening to others in a way that allows others to listen to themselves. This internalization of caring witnesses reinstates compassion and witnessing among formerly intolerable or dissociated parts of ourselves. By listening, witnessing, deeply attending, we are perhaps closest to approximating the way God attends to us and loves us. For most of us, God may seem silent much of the time. Maybe this is because God is listening to us so intently and deeply. Perhaps when we truly listen to another with our whole mind and heart, body and soul, we are even instruments, however fleetingly, of God's own healing recognition, God's power to resurrect us, God's own infinite love. And in this recognition, this witnessing, we share not only compassion, but the kind of deep empathic understanding that leads to change and justice-making. This leads to the second area of change in the pastoral field, that of context. Carol Watkins Ali, a pastoral counselor in Denver, tells this story. Lemonine was in her early 40s when she died. She left behind two children, a daughter in her early 20s, and a son in his last year of high school. She had raised both of them as a single parent most of their lives. She left also a toddler granddaughter whom she was resigned to raise if she had to, aging parents who divorced when she was a child, and a sister from whom she felt estranged. For all appearances, Lemonine was a middle-class black woman well-educated, articulate, and very talented, an artist. She was quite attractive in personality and in the way she put herself together, impeccably groomed, stylish. However, the truth of the matter was that Lemonine was a poor black woman, economically oppressed by her life circumstances. She lived with the reality that missing one paycheck from her corporate position would put her and her family on the streets. Her reality was that there was never enough money to make ends meet. She virtually lived in fear of the next time that the already too old car would break down or would be stolen again. Health was another major concern that Lemonine worried about, and she literally worried herself sick. The year prior to entering therapy, she had been hospitalized for extreme physical exhaustion. She appeared vibrant, something she had mastered, and looked a picture of health. Not many would believe, except other poor black women like herself, that things were as desperate as they were for Lemonine. And she concludes this section of describing Lemonine and her goals in psychotherapy as this truly, life was Lemonine's presenting problem. There are no other diagnoses in the traditional sense. Lemonine was basically suffering from being overcome by her own personal life while trying to cope with all the external social realities that affected each age group of her family members. In essence, each weekly session during our relationship served mainly to build Lemonine up so that she could go back out to face a hostile and racist world for another week. Traditional one-on-one models of pastoral care based on the medical model tended to operate in the arena of the individual psyche and perhaps as influenced by family systems theory on the family, but individual and nuclear family models, while still very helpful to many, nevertheless have ignored the larger dimensions of human experience, including social, political, economic, racial, ethnic, and cultural surroundings in which any individual's life is embedded and which brings additional pressures, stresses, and traumas, both acute and ongoing, to bear on an individual's growth and the living of a life. The increasing awareness of these contextual realities has led pastoral theology into an awareness of the connection between pastoral care and the work for justice. In the words of Larry Kent Graham of Iliff School of Theology, there has been a shift from relational humanness, not bad in itself, to relational justice. Relational justice means that pastoral care can no longer focus on the individual in isolation from the wider context. This takes us into the arena of advocacy as well as individual care, and an awareness that our own openness to the reality and the wisdom for those whom we care can model the kind of mutuality and correct for the kind of top-down, power-over-expert role that once held sway. We are no longer just called to be good, quote, active listeners, although that is never a bad idea, but empowerers with a social analysis that informs care. We need to hold in our awareness the wider contextual realities in which individuals struggle to live their lives and to refrain from diagnosing as individual psychological or spiritual problems what are in fact outcomes of societal rather than individual illness and spiritual malaise. In concrete terms, this means the arena of care is broadened, no longer confined only to that book-lined pastor's study. The pastoral care may be understood as the preaching of sermons that call for personal empowerment and liberation of persons, offering small groups for support, Bible study, and discipleship, aimed toward changing those realities that stifle and oppress individuals' lives and community and then getting out there in the wider community doing public theology. That is, exercising the ancient Augustinian call of the church to stand as a witness to, and a critiquing partner with, the social and political institutions in our communities. To join together for those who are working for social change that undergirds the possibility of personal change. This contextualization of pastoral care with its commitment to relational justice leads to the third aspect of change in pastoral care, which is diversifying. This refers to the diversification of caregivers and resources made available to those seeking help. In fact, the first trend within diversifying the understanding of what pastoral care is has to do with the very term pastoral itself. The image of the shepherd, as traditionally used in pastoral theology, as I mentioned, comes from the Gospel of John. And although there are other shepherds in the Hebrew Bible, the shepherd as a model for pastoral caregivers has carried a distinctively Christian and especially Protestant, as well as North American and somewhat also Northern European history and character. It has differed as a discipline in its professional self-understanding and concrete practices from Orthodox, Catholic, and many Anglican expressions of the ancient practice of cura animarum, or cure of souls, in which care is understood more in terms of spiritual direction and formation. In a modern, globalized, and religiously plural world, however, being well-trained in Christian-based shepherding is not enough. For this reason, non-congregational settings for care, such as hospitals, prisons, and military chaplaincies, have begun to use the more non-sectarian term, spiritual care. Spiritual care might well be served by Tillich's definition of the helping encounter in the dimension of ultimate concern. Of course, the term spiritual raises the question, what is meant by spirituality? The broadest definition, which characterizes much of the professional discipline of spiritual care today, has been well stated by Dr. Kristen Merrill of Tübingen University. Spirituality is the dynamic dimension of human life that relates to the way persons individual and community experience express and or seek meaning purpose and transcendence and the way they connect to the moment to self to others to the significant and or the sacred the spiritual field is multidimensional Existential challenges, including questions concerning identity, meaning, suffering and death, guilt and shame, reconciliation and forgiveness, freedom and responsibility, hope and despair, love and joy. Value-based considerations and attitudes, what I find most important for each person, such as relations to oneself, family, friends, work, things, nature, art, culture, ethics, morals, and life itself and religious considerations and foundations, faith, belief, and practice, the relationship with God, the holy or the ultimate. So there is practically speaking a both and quality to the interrelation between pastoral and spiritual care. At a conference in May 2015 where a new International Association of Spiritual Care was launched in Bern, Switzerland. We began to probe these questions honestly beyond simply affirming the importance of a kind of generic compassion or kumbaya spiritual care. We agreed that pastoral care is probably best understood as a subspecialty within spiritual care, that the important skills of listening, compassionate presence, and advocacy cut across religious boundaries. However, sacramental or ritual care and questions of theology, doctrine, and tradition require caregivers of the same tradition as the help For Anglicans, perhaps, the spiritual care might best be expressed as de- addressing the realms of reason, encompassing experience, as Richard Hooker originally meant it, the sacred act of making meaning out of suffering, while pastoral care addresses with other Anglicans our understandings of Scripture and tradition, always still under construction and contention as a church that is semper reformanda, And this leads to another point about diversification, which is teamwork, community, and collaboration. Not all pastoral or spiritual care has ever been dispensed in the one-on-one setting of a professional office with a fixed appointment, even if that's the image we have cultivated. Nor has all pastoral care ever been dispensed solely by the clergy. The one-on-one model in North American pastoral care has all too often perpetuated a one-down expert role that tends to subtly fix rather than empower the person coming for help. However, there's now a growing respect for the wide variety of resources available for pastoral care and for the clergy person or chaplain as one resource, albeit an important one with particular gifts, but only one resource among many. Pastoral theologians, using a phrase from Bonnie Miller McLemore of Vanderbilt University, are now reconceiving pastoral caregivers as facilitators of networks of care, rather than solitary caregivers. Margaret Kornfeld similarly wrote about pastoral care as a paradigm of cultivating wholeness, in which a variety of gardeners with a variety of expertise collaborate in the facilitation of spiritual growth and healing. The person, often recognized as the founder of modern American pastoral care, Anton Boisen, was concerned that pastoral caregivers turn from an over-reliance on theory and texts to a more existential respect for the life of individuals in all their uniqueness. He called for the study of living human documents rather than books. And this phrase, living human documents, struck a resonant chord in pastoral caregivers who sought to get closer to the lived inner experience of their helpes. Even this paradigm, however, was limited by an individualistic bent, and Bonnie Miller McLemore has proposed replacing the living human document with the living human web as an appropriate subject for investigation, interpretation, and transformation. She advocates for, quote, a shift toward context, collaboration, and diversity in which the work of caregiving includes both individual and communal care, respecting the complexity and multiple contextual realities of persons' real lives. In concrete terms, this means the notion of care expands from the lone pastoral caregiver with a lone parishioner or couple or even a family. To a web of resources gathered collaboratively to address the complex layered needs and struggles of each helpee. Means having a well-thumbed contacts list, including a wide variety of personally known and trusted helpers in the community. If If your fingers are doing the walking through the yellow pages when someone is sitting there in crisis in front of you, you have not done your homework in advance. We need to be able to say. I know this resource person and I trust them. Lay Eucharistic ministers and other empowered lay caregivers are also important for us to share responsibility. Small group leaders, Stephen ministers, parish nurses, and pastoral care teams. And it also means hitting the pavement to identify and join with others who are working to change the conditions that perpetuate suffering and to bring individuals like that who are working in our communities back as witnesses to the wider needs of the community in our congregations. There's a hidden benefit to this approach because although it sounds a lot like work, going out and meeting all these people and creating all these networks of relationship, in fact, it's a lot less taxing than the old paradigm because we no longer have the sole responsibility for the care of the flock. This now becomes a shared responsibility and a collaboration of the whole body of Christ by virtue of our baptismal covenant and not by virtue of ordination with the wider community. And this finally leads to the last and fourth aspect of change I mentioned, which is balance. A collaborative model of pastoral care replaces that old self-sacrificing model of the shepherd who lays down his or her life for the sheep with a model of balance exemplified in care for self as well as care for others, and a respect for boundaries as a positive good. The image of the oxygen mask on an airplane is a trite but true analogy. The safety announcement that says to put on your own oxygen mask first before helping another person. If we exhaust ourselves in giving without taking time to replenish, if we burn out, what use are we to anybody? also not much use to ourselves, and our relationships with others, and even God, suffers. We may lose sight of our counter-transference, that psychoanalytic term that means how we feel in relation to those who come to us for care, both positively, in terms of our capacity for empathy, and negatively, when we begin to unconsciously act out old roles and dynamics from our own unresolved issues. When we overextend ourselves on behalf of others, we're prone to falling into a trap of self-aggrandizement of the martyr. I'm indispensable, I'm so important, everyone needs me. This need to be needed can be toxic. We don't have time to refuel as we should in prayer and rest and personal self-nurturing activities and pretty soon we start deriving our sense of self-worth from those we are helping, rather than from the resources of our own personal lives and most importantly, rather than from our own nourishing relationship with God. Our self-awareness is also critical in our public work for justice. Knowledge of the unconscious, of the places where we ourselves have been wounded, even traumatized, is central to effective advocacy. We will not be at our best as church or community organizers, change agents, and activists if we don't understand some of our deep personal motives that help fuel the legitimate and righteous anger we feel toward injustice. If we're only fueled by an unconscious wish to throw down all authority because, for example, father or mother were harsh and authoritarian. If we are only fueled by a desire for retribution because of traumas we have suffered and survived in the past, then we may be prone to unleash our anger onto one another in a kind of more pure and righteous than thou way, trying to make the next person more politically correct even than ourselves, or we may simply burn out. Our anger is valid and its roots need to be made conscious so that we can channel it towards strategizing together how best to speak truth to power in love, as the Quaker saying goes, with maturity and consciousness, as well as, or hand in hand with, our zeal. Pastoral theologian Jeannie Stevenson Messner has held up the biblical image of the Good Samaritan as an alternative to the shepherd. The Good Samaritan helped the man who we found on the side of the road, half dead, stripped, and beaten, but he also went on with his own journey. He did not give his life for the stranger. He rather shared life with him. And further, he made a referral. (laughs) He solicited the help of the innkeeper, pledging resources and support and pledging to return, but also keeping all the other commitments of his life. He kept all his commitments in balance. This story, in fact, is a useful example of the power of a good timely referral to a trusted resource. (laughs) nor did the Samaritan refer and dump, but rather promised ongoing support of the referral. We don't refer and say, okay, got that one done. All this he accomplished without sacrificing his own plans and without becoming entangled in an enmeshed dependency relationship inappropriate (laughs) to the task of care. The message of the Samaritan is simple, but poses a healthy alternative to some traditional models of care. Share the caring task with others. Stay connected but not over-involved, and stay whole yourself. Messner uses the Samaritan story to illustrate Christ's summary of the law that you love your neighbor as yourself, not instead of yourself. So keeping good boundaries is not withholding love and care, but rather safeguarding that love and care within a container of trust, respect, and safety. When we begin to overvalue our own importance in tending the needs of others and begin to over-identify and confuse ourselves with the savior, very bad things can happen. Mm -hmm. Finally, it is Christ who is the great shepherd of the sheep, not ourselves. When we cling too hard to the shepherd paradigm, we may run the risk of confusing ourselves with the savior. It may feel gratifying temporarily, but it's ultimately soul-killing. Dorothy McRae McMahon, the pastor of Pitt Street Congregational Church in Australia, calls for self-awareness, a certain lightness of being, and a daily vocation based in gratitude toward God and profound respect toward every other person. She writes, underpinning all that I do pastorally is the absolute conviction that God is at the bottom of every abyss, is the oasis in the desert, the light in the darkness that is never extinguished, and the waiting meaning in the nothingness. She says, in our hands lie the bread and wine and water of the grace of baptism. When these precious elements were placed in my hands on the day of my ordination, I wondered if I would ever be worthy of carrying them. But as I broke the bread and offered the wine, I realized that the life I held would never depend on me or the strength and worthiness of my hands. A presence was there in once offered grace and freedom, It was simply named by me and claimed in thanksgiving by the people of God. Remember, Jesus sent the disciples out two by two. He did not send individuals, but partners. And when those partners went forth, he foretold that they would be empowered to do great healing works in his name. This is the image for me that replaces the paradigm of the shepherd, the image of the disciples going out as partners without lots of extra provisions but with the confidence of the Gospel and the reliance on the hospitality of strangers that would make their mission complete. That Gospel message of love and justice together offers us an alternative to the division between the pastoral and the prophetic. Bearing the wonder of the message of healing and liberation that we have received, we can become companions to one another on the journey. And as we go, we may find, as did the disciples on the Emmaus Road, that we even end up, without realizing it, walking side by side with Christ himself. Thank you.